0: On July 26th of 2010, Chelsea and I celebrated our wedding. We had only been dating since that February, and we got engaged appropriately that April Fool's Day. And so from between April Fool's Day and that July 26th, we planned everything. Well, (laughs) she planned everything. Uh, We picked a caterer. We sent out invitations, half of which somehow changed the word six to the word sucks for the time of day that the wedding would be taking place. It was always a fun faux pas. Uh, three different wedding dresses had found their way into Chelsea's possession. All the arrangements had been made. And so finally on that day, she walked the aisle. We exchanged rings and vows. Pastor pronounced us husband and wife, and we sealed our covenant with a kiss. Why the ceremony? Because ceremonies bring about a change in the individuals who are participating in them through a series of rites. And so the wedding ceremony, for example, changed us from two single people who were dating into a married couple in covenant relationship with one another. But what we have before us today in Leviticus chapter 8 is the description of an incredible ceremony. The anointing of priests to preside over the sacrificial system in Israel. And so the main idea of the text, what I want you to kind of contemplate, is that that God so desired intimacy with his people that he set up the sacrificial system in the first place, but he so desires intimacy with his people, he provides priests to serve as mediators who make atonement for sin through the sacrificial system. He's setting up the priesthood here. And the exhortation will follow on the heels of that because, as we know, the whole sacrificial system, sacrifices and priests together, are shadows that point to the substance of Christ. All of it finds its fullest meaning and its fulfillment in Jesus. And so the application is quite simple that we are to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness of our sins. The whole section, the whole chapter, has this refrain in it, and you'll see it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. Something you know akin to that. And, and it repeats itself over the next few chapters, from chapters 8 to 10. And here specifically, it repeats seven times, like a chorus throughout the chapter. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And it actually divides the chapter into seven neat little sections for us to see each step in this ceremony. And so that's reflected in your outline there before you, if you have an insert. And so you can just follow right along. We're going to walk through um, verse by verse this morning. First, we need to pray. Father, what we have not give us, what we are not, make us, and what we know not teach us. We ask this morning that you would help us to hear your word and to be changed by it. Focus us on you in the moments to come. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see his glory. Enlarge our hearts so that we might love him more. We trust that your word will do its work in us. We ask you for that now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As we dive back into Leviticus, since we've kind of been away from the book for a short season, uh, we want to remind ourselves where we are in the story here. In Leviticus, which is a book of laws, takes place in the context of Israel's story. Remember, they were an enslaved people in Egypt and God, by his great mercy and grace, took them out of Egypt and made them his people. And part of being God's people, for Israel, meant to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And if you remember, in the book of Exodus, it's years ago now that we walked through it, but this turns out to be something that Israel fails at. And right away, Moses is still collecting the law of God up on the mountain. When God says, the people have made an image of a golden calf and are worshiping it. Moses, remember, goes down the mountain and Joshua is with him and he says, It sounds like there's a battle going on. And then they get closer. He goes, No, it's singing and revelry, and they discover that people are worshiping this false idol, breaking the second commandment that they had already received. And it becomes clear from that moment on when Moses has to stand up on behalf of the people and say, God, I know that you have every right to eliminate them, but but don't do it. Please, please. For your own glory, don't do it. Be patient, be kind. God obliges, doesn't wipe out the people. But there is judgment. Moses goes down, and there's that moment where he says, Everybody that is for the Lord, come to me. And do you remember who goes to Moses? It's the Levites. The Levites end up being the people that carry out the activities of the priesthood. The Levites come to him and at this moment uh, they take up swords and they go and they kill everyone who refuses to repent. So there's both mercy and judgment. But what is clear is that God's people are not living up to their identity. They're not able Be perfectly holy as God is holy. And so at the end of Exodus, the the glory of the Lord fills the temple, but not even Moses can go in. And when we come to the, the first verses of the book of Leviticus, we read that God speaks to Moses from inside the temple, while Moses is outside of the temple. And then when you go to the book of Numbers, which follows the book of Leviticus, you see that God is speaking to Moses. And they're both inside the tabernacle. And you go, what has changed? Well, sin has alienated Moses and the people from God in some way. It's it's estranged them. Really, the big question of the book of Leviticus is, how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? And Leviticus answers for us, through the sacrificial system through God's provision and mercy and his grace. And that grace and mercy shows up in this sacrificial system. The book uh, introduces us to those five major sacrifices. The burnt offering in chapter one, which is the principal offering for atoning for sin, It's the most costly of them and the whole of the sacrifice is burned up on the altar and the the smoke extends to the sky so that you can see it wherever you are in Israel and you are reminded, I am a sinner, I deserve to die, and God has saved me. Chapter 2 introduces us to the grain offering, which expresses thanksgiving and dedication to God. It says, thank you, Lord, I belong to you. Chapter 3 shows us the fellowship offering. And this is the the best offering, I think, because the worshiper gets to eat part of it, right? And so so you go and you offer your sacrifice, and then you actually get to eat the food that was sacrificed. You share it, and it's reflective of sharing a covenant meal with God. Chapter 4 introduces us to the purification, or sometimes called the sin offering, and in this, like all the sacrifices before it, has a part that reflects that, yes, um, we are sinners and we deserve to die. And atonement is being made, the sinners being ransomed. But it also specially emphasizes how the blood of the sacrifice cleans and cleanses. It purifies the worshiper and is able to purify the camp. Because in Leviticus, your sin not only affects you and the people around you, it actually pollutes the camp. So that when the priests sin or the whole community sins, you have to take blood inside the tabernacle and go through this ritual where you you put it on the horns of the incense altar and sprinkle it before the curtain to to cleanse it, to purify it, to clean it, to make atonement for sin. And chapter 5 tells us about the um, debt, or sorry, the compensation offering or reparation offering, sometimes called. And it shows us that, that sin creates a debt. It is specifically used when somebody sins against God's holy name or God's holy things. A sin debt is created that has to be paid. And this teaches us that, that we must, there must be payment for sin. All of these sacrifices work together to teach us something about how salvation works in God's economy, about the cost of sin, and about God's grace and His mercy. The, the, the rituals are not meaningless. That's what I want to impress upon you. They're meaningful. They're how the people of Israel express their faith and trust in God's promises and provision. Chapter 6 and 7 then reiterate these sacrifices to us, and they actually give give them to us from the angle of the priesthood. And so they're instructions for the priests about how to carry out these particular sacrifices. And now, having all that groundwork laid, here's the sacrifices, here's how priests are to perform the sacrifices. You need priests. And so we come to what is a big day in the life of Israel, a huge ceremony the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take Aaron, his sons with him, the garments, the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the whole community at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Moses did, as the Lord commanded him. And the community assembled at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. And so that's our, our little first section. And every time I read it anywhere in Scripture, it, it just wows me that God would speak to us. The Lord spoke to Moses. And he spoke to Adam and Eve, and he spoke to Noah, and he spoke to Abraham, and to Moses, and to David, and to the prophets. And finally, he speaks perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reason God speaks to us is because he wants us to know him. That's why we have his word. He's revealing himself to us because he desires relationship with us. It's what we were made for. We were made to worship God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And we only know that because in his mercy, he has revealed it to us in his word. I love that he's revealed it to us in Christ and in the gospel. love how simple the gospel is. Right? It's uh, often say, It's deep enough to drown an elephant and yet shallow enough for a child to play in. It's really simple. We were made to know God. We rebelled against God and deserved to die. And God, the Son, became a man and died for us so that when we trust in Him, we might live. And God raised Him from the dead to prove the sufficiency of His work to prove that he is indeed master over life and death. So that when we respond to his word with faith, we can know that death will not be the last word. God desires intimacy and relationship with his people. And so he speaks and reveals himself to us so that we might believe his word and then express that belief in our behavior by obeying it. And you see, Moses does this here throughout the chapter. He, the God speaks, and then he does as the Lord had commanded Moses. You see, over and over and over. And this is true in the New Testament as well. We hear God's word, we respond to it in faith, and then we do what it says. 1 John 5, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. Because this is what love for God is. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Moses is just such an excellent example of this. He has seen the love of God. God has loved Moses and in response to God's love, Moses does what God says. He sets the example He's actually going to serve as the priest in this particular ceremony. And Aaron and his sons should do like Moses does. We actually get a sense of that because throughout the chapter, uh, Moses does as the Lord commanded him. And then if you look at verse 36, the very last verse, after everything's said and done, you read, So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord had commanded through Moses. This is the pattern. You hear from God, you believe God, and so you do what God says because this honors God. It expresses a love for God. Atonement for sin is made, and then a life is lived as an expression of worship to God. This ceremony revolves around making atonement for the sins of the priests and making them ritually holy. They are set apart to serve as God's holy representative. And so we see Moses does all the Lord commands him right here early on. To pick up on our, our wedding illustration, right? He, he fills out the seating chart. He uh, sends out the invitation and the guests are all of Israel. He gets all the ingredients that he needs to perform the ceremony and he gets everybody together. And you're going, well, that's a lot of people, all of Israel. Yes, it is. Uh, So some commentators say that basically the idea is probably just the the elders and the representatives of the people stood uh, and watched this ceremony take place in front of the tabernacle. Uh, Others suggest that maybe the elders stood at the front and then the rest of the people kind of filled in behind them and then spilled out of the temple precinct. But everybody was involved intimately in this ceremony because it was that important. And so this is, everybody's there, everybody's watching, and so the ceremony Begins. Verse 6, Then Moses presented Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. This just represents cleansing them. He put the tunic on Aaron, wrapped the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put an ephod on him. He put the woven band of the ephod around him and fastened it to him. Then he put the breast piece on him, and placed the urim and the thummim into the breastpiece. He also put the turban on his head and placed the gold medallion, the holy diadem, on the front of the turban, as the Lord commanded Moses. Clothing communicates. We know this, right? Doctors wear white coats. Uh, Police and soldiers wear uniforms. Mourners wear black So the priests wear special clothing. It communicates something about their office and about their function. And their clothing is full of meaning. Uh, Not all of it is exegeted for us here. Uh, A lot of this information is actually back in Exodus chapter 28 and 29 and 39. And so if you want, uh, you can read some of that for homework uh, and and learn more about this. I'm just going to tell you about a few of the pieces, starting with the ephod. And you can see, actually, man, this insert's so good. You see that little picture in the bottom left corner? And that's at the top of best inserts ever. Uh, but, but this is kind of what it looks like. You can see that picture. The ephod is that, that uh, multicolored piece that goes about halfway down. It's like an apron, and it's sleeveless. It's got two stones on the shoulders, and on each of these two stones are six names of the tribes of Israel. Remember, there are 12 tribes, and so six names on each stone. And just emphasizing the representative role of the priest as he goes before God, especially when he would go before God on that day of atonement, representing all the people. And then uh, you see the breast piece there, you got four rows of three stones each. And on each of these stones, there's 12 of them, right? There's a name of the tribe of Israel. And so you've got him uh, bearing the, the, representing the people on his shoulders and uh, on his heart. And I just always think of the imagery in the New Testament of Christ carrying the the cross or carrying our sins on his shoulders because he holds us in his heart, because he he loves us. Anyhow, uh, that brings us to the urim and the thummim. These are very mysterious. Uh, We don't know what they were or how they worked, only that they existed. They were the urim and the thummim. And they help the people discern the will of God. So people have said it's probably like, kind of like dice maybe, or two different stones that they could reach inside of this, uh, the ephod would function kind of like a special pocket, right, on the front of the, I'm sorry, the breast piece would function like a special pocket on, on front of the ephod. So you could just pull your hand out, and yes or no, and discern the will of God. But nobody really knows. Some people, I read one commentator, suggested that this is a way of describing that, that the gems on the front of the ephod would actually light up, In certain ways, either way, we don't know how it worked, but it was to discern the will of God. And it actually isn't used all that much throughout Scripture, but it's part of this very special garment. That brings us to the colors and the robe and the pomegranates and the bells. Yes, pomegranates and bells, and you can't really see them well in the picture here, but on the bottom, on the hem of the robe, there are artificial pomegranates and bells, and it would be pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell. So why the bells? Well, the bells were there to, to announce kind of the coming of the high priest or where he was so people uh, wouldn't accidentally fall into him, make him unholy, or, or desecrate him in any way. And the, bell, the bells also fu- functioned in a really practical way, especially on the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. Only one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was specially localized and manifest to make atonement on behalf of the people. And when he went in there, nobody else could go with him. And he would be going into extraordinarily holy space. Which means, because God's holiness destroys sin like the sun destroys darkness, it means that if he goes in there with the least bit of sin, the the least little bit ritually unclean, he might die. And so what do the bells do? Well, as long as you hear the bells and him moving around, he's good. But if you hear a clank and you don't hear the bells for a while, things did not go according to plan. But what about what about these pomegranates? Pomegranates in the ancient world uh, denoted uh, abundance, prosperity, and in fact, we learn later on in Kings when Solomon builds his temple, he has pomegranates put on columns. Four hundred of them, right, kind of drawn on there. And then we look at the colors of the robe, right? Red, blue, purple, and gold. None of this stuff is cheap. These are some expensive threads, y'all. Like, you didn't just go out and get blue and and red thread. It It was very rare and precious. And it just so happened to be the same stuff that the tabernacle was made out of. And so you can see the priest's garments match the tabernacle itself to demonstrate the connection between the sacrificial system and the priesthood. They go together. The priest, the high priest, is kind of a a mini tabernacle, if you will. He's representing God's presence to the people, and he represents the people to God. And only the high priest gets these special garments. Like, the other priests get, get clothes and they get washed, but they're not as important as Aaron. And they're not as, their clothing isn't as important as his. So that's kind of phase two of this ceremony. Then, verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it to consecrate them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, that's thorough and complete, remember, anointing the altar with all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed and consecrated him. Then Moses presented Aaron's sons, clothed them with tunics, wrapped sashes around them, and fastened headbands on them, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This anointing with oil is just showing that Aaron is going to fill a special position, and that the tabernacle and the instruments in it are filling a special purpose. They're, they're being set apart, consecrated to God. Also symbolizes God's pouring out of his blessing on his people, through Aaron the high priest and through this tabernacle. Now that everybody's dressed, we come to verse 14. The offering of the purification bull. Then he brought the bull near for the purification or sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. Then Moses slaughtered it took the blood and applied it with his fingers to the horns of the bronze altar on all sides, purifying the altar. He poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it so that atonement could be made on it. Moses took all the fat that was on the entrails and the fatty lobe of liver and the two kidneys with their fat and he burned them on the altar. He burned the bull with its hide, flesh, and waste outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so he just goes through the normal purification offering procedure, which we saw back in chapter 4. Uh, the, the Aaron and his sons are putting their hands on the head of the bull, and they're, they're leaning on it, pressing on it, and they are saying, this bull represents me. It's carrying my sins. What happens to this bull deserves to happen to me. And then the bull is slaughtered. And its lifeblood has the effect, as we've said, of ransoming them from their sin. It pays the penalty for their sin, and this offering emphasizes purification and cleansing. And so we see that the blood cleanses the altar and makes it ready for sacrifice. It also represents that they're being cleansed or purified of their sin. Their sin is being washed away so that they might serve God, appropriately. And you'll notice they don't go inside the the tabernacle to make atonement, right? It's because nobody's been in there yet. We have instructions about, hey, if you guys sin in this way, you need to go in, sprinkle seven times in front of the curtain, altar of incense, purify the inside of the tabernacle, but nobody's been in there yet to defile it, and so that's not necessary. We're just gonna purify the the bronze altar uh, for the sacrifices that are about to be made. And that brings us to the next phase. Purification offering made. And the burnt offering in verse 18. Then he presented the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and splattered the blood on all the sides of the altar. Moses cut the ram into pieces and burned the head, the pieces, and the fat. But he washed the entrails and the legs with water. He then burned the entire ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma a fire offering to the Lord, as he had commanded Moses. So he, he goes through the typical burnt offering procedures. They lay their hands and say, as, as this animal is, so I deserve to be. And, and they make a burnt offering to the Lord. It's an atonement sacrifice. And the burnt offering is also really neat because it can also be offered to express praise and worship to God. And I think both things are in view here. Atonement for sin and praise and worship to God. And that that brings us to the fellowship offering, which is the next phase. Verse 22. Next he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination. This ordination offering is just a type of fellowship offering. It has some oddities in it. We'll get to those. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it, took some of its blood, and put it on Aaron's right earlobe, the thumb of his right hand, and on the toe of his right foot, the big toe. Moses also presented Aaron's sons and put some of the blood on their right earlobes, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then Moses splattered the blood on all sides of the altar. He took the fat, the fat tail, and the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe of liver, and two kidneys with their fat, as well as the right thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one cake of unleavened bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer, and placed them on the fat portions on the right thigh. He put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and presented them before the Lord as a presentation offering or a wave offering. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering for pleasing aroma, a fire offering to the Lord. He also took the breast and presented it before the Lord as a presentation offering. It was Moses' portion of the ordination ram as the Lord had commanded him. And so this is just a type of fellowship offering which makes sense. The, the sin has been washed away. It's been atoned for. They are worshiping God, praising God, and, and now they're going to have a fellowship meal, a fellowship offering, which communicates the covenant that has been made with the Lord. Remember, this is what they do in Exodus 24 after the covenant's made. They, they eat together to show that they're in relationship. That's normal fellowship offering stuff, but what about some of this you know, weird stuff with the, the blood on the earlobe and, and on the big toe and on the, the, the right hand? You know, the reason for this is just, uh, it's, it's a synecdoche, or, or when a, a part represents the whole, right? Sort of like when Jesus tells Peter, uh, Peter's like, wash my whole body since you've washed my feet, and Jesus is like, no, you, you've had your feet washed, that's enough, right? It represents the whole, you're, you're clean. Why the right side? This is just considered the side of strength and power in the ancient world. And so you read phrases like the right arm of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord. This is the strong side. The idea is that they're being completely, all of them, dedicated to the Lord. It communicates that they need to be completely washed in the blood of the Lamb, being set apart. For special t- special task, and atonement is being made for their sin. They go through the the wave offering, the other parts of fellowship offering, presentation offering. It just means the wave. It's a hard way, to tra- hard thing to translate. You take part of it and you just kind of lift it up to the Lord as an offering. Maybe you waved it side to side. We, we don't really know but they would say, this is the Lord's. Moses uh, gives them that, they, they elevate it, then he takes it back, throws it on the altar, burns that up, and then he takes his priestly portion, and then he gets ready to, in our next phase, sprinkle them. Look with me at verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil, some of the blood that was on the altar, and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments, as well as his son and their garments. In this way, he consecrated Aaron and his garments as well as his son and their garments. This is straightforward about why he sprinkles them with blood. He's, again, reiterating, they are being set apart for this very important task of representing the people to God and representing God to the people. Reminds us again of Exodus 24, when the people make covenant with God, they say, we're going to be your holy people. And they read out blessings and curses and and they say, we will do everything that you have commanded us. And Moses goes through and he has his blood and he sprinkles them with it. Going through a ceremony to set themselves apart as God's holy people. And the same thing's happening here. These These priests are being set apart as God's holy servants. Verse 31. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket for the ordination offering as I commanded. Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Burn up what remains of the meat and bread. Do not go outside of the tent of meeting for seven days until the time of your ordination is complete. Because it will take seven days to ordain you. Here's verse 34. Here's the point of the section we've been reading. They're going to tell us explicitly the Lord commanded what has been done today in order to make atonement for you. You must remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the Lord's charge so that you will not die for this is what I was commanded. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord had commanded through Moses. Exodus tells us they actually are not just there for seven days, that they repeat this ceremony for seven days, for a week. I mean, you go, well, what's, what's going on here? Or the atonement is being made for sin. And we're seeing that the sin of these priests is great. I mean, can you imagine taking a new job? And as part of the requirement as you're getting ready to take your new position, is for seven days, everybody's going to stand up, somebody's going to stand up and remind everybody else about how sinful you are. Right? Uh, Here's Bob, he's the, the new manager of the IT department. And I've got to tell you, I love Bob, I think he's a great guy, but he is also a terrible, terrible sinner. And then the next day, you know, a different person stands up. We're so glad to have Bob with us, new member of the team. But I've got to tell you, Bob is not perfect. He is a, just a desperately wicked sinner. And then, you know, by the third day, you're probably a little worn out by it. But this is important. I mean, the message is clear here. The holiness of God's people, and especially his priests, is paramount. They must be holy. And the second truth is also clear. The sin of the people and of the priests is great. Aaron and his sons, even though they've been set apart to serve in the priesthood, are not special in and of themselves. They're not some greater species of Israelite. They're not greater than their brethren for whom they will make atonement. Now, they are great sinners who themselves must have atonement made for their sins. This is made clear throughout this seven day process. And it's made clear in the life of Aaron. Maybe we think back to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. I mean, he didn't come up with the idea, but he engineered the whole thing. He brought theory into practice. They're like, Aaron, Moses has been gone for a while. We would like to make an idol and worship it. And he doesn't rebuke them. He says, all right, cool, bring me your gold. And then they bring him his gold, and he fashions a golden calf out of it. And I've always always loved his response when Moses asks him, like, hey, what happened here? And he says, well, you know, the people are really, really wicked and... uh, they brought me this gold and I threw it into the fire and this calf just jumped out. It's like, if you're going to lie, lie better than that. The point here is that Aaron and his sons have no business being priests. They have no business being made holy. But God It's gracious. God has chosen them. And God has decided that he will make atonement for their sin. And that he will declare them to be ritually holy. Friends, the same is true of us if we know Christ. We have no business being God's holy people. We have no business being forgiven of our sins. There's nothing special about us or good within us apart from Christ. We are desperately wicked. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve the full force of God's wrath. And instead, instead, he's resolved to speak to us in his word, to tell us that wonderful gospel, that he sent his one and only son to die in the place of all who would repent of their sins and trust in him. So that when they die, they can have full confidence that they will rise from the dead just as their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is risen from the dead. We have no business being God's holy people but this is just what he's declared us to be. It's, it's funny, you read a text like this sometimes, and I think that, man, high priest, what a great calling. And it was for Aaron priests, great for his son. But, friends, the New Testament tells us that in Christ, you and I are priests. Every one of us who is in relationship with Jesus Christ is a holy priest. This is is what 1 Peter 2 tells us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies or praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We don't make atonement for anyone's sins. We don't offer sacrifices of animals. But Hebrews tells us we offer spiritual sacrifices. And Romans tells us that we're to offer our whole life as a spiritual sacrifice. Conjures up images of a burnt offering. In the same way, the priests represented God to the people, we too, this side of the cross, are to represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world and to one another. This is a a great and incredible calling. Friends, not only does Jesus make atonement for our sins, not only does he declare us holy and righteous before God, But he sets us apart for a special work. Holy living. Serving as his ambassadors. Telling this wonderful good news. That Jesus Christ died for sins and is raised from the dead. That he died so that your sins might be forgiven and he raised so that you might be free from death so that we can call men and women and children everywhere to worship the true king of the universe. Call everybody towards satisfaction, to fulfill their purpose, to say, you were made to know the God who made everything. The stars worship him. The mountains worship him. The grass worships him. Everything exists for his glory. You exist for his glory. So give him glory by obeying him, by living the holy life. Give everything to him because he's given everything to you. Put your faith in this wonderful king. Put your faith in Jesus. and Be saved from your sins have confidence that in the last day when he returns to end evil, that he won't have to put an end to you because he no longer knows you as a rebel enslaved to sin, but he calls you son and daughter and says to you, my precious child, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The best is yet to come. We've ended evil, and there are all kinds of adventures this side of the old earth. Come into my rest. All of the promises are coming into fruition. This is what you were made for. Oh, friends, when we look at this text, we are reminded that atonement must be made for our sins, and we are reminded that Jesus has done it. And just as he has made provision for our sins, he going to fulfill his promise to make all things new. And so I ask you this morning in the words of the old hymn, are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Christian, if you are, I invite you to confess your sins afresh this morning. and Receive that wonderful, fresh forgiveness from God. And if you do not know Jesus, if you're not obeying Jesus, I beg you, turn from your sins and put your faith in him. Make this God, the God who is your God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you not thinking we're really good people or that we could ever do enough to earn salvation, confessing that this life is not about just doing the best we can, not about just being really a good person. We come confessing the truth that we are rebellious sinners and that we deserve to hang on the gallows. Lord, we thank you that in our place, Christ hung, condemned. We thank you that he has risen again and that death doesn't have the last word. That indeed, amidst the darkness of sin, a light has dawned and it is almost noonday. God, we come before you like that tax collector beating his breast, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. But have mercy on us. Forgive us of our sins. We thank you that in Christ we know this request is granted. We thank you that in Christ we've already been declared holy. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might help us to live transformed lives that we would become and practice what we've been declared in Christ. Help us to live as your holy priests. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.